Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. This quarter, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the parables of Jesus. You might be familiar with them, you might not. They're stories Jesus told to kind of help people understand what God was about. And the reason why we're going to look at them and the reason Jesus is the same reason he used them because what parables have is they have this unique way to kind of get behind our defenses and to kind of undo our preconceived notions about who God is, who Jesus is, what his kingdom is all about. And they're actually designed to frustrate you. And so if you get frustrated hearing from the parables, then that's what Jesus' plan was, is for it to kind of stick and to kind of annoy you and think it can't be like this, Jesus doesn't surely mean this. And by frustrating you, it forces us to think about it a little bit longer. So, I hope you get frustrated. Uh, And and the reason he intends to frustrate us is because Christians and skeptics, everybody, have all, we all have these ways, whether or not we even believe God exists, ways we think God ought to be. And uh, one writer said this, The parables frustrate us and force us to consider who God is because Jesus keeps telling us that the God of the Bible is so ungodly. And what he means is that God keeps failing to fit into the caricatures that both religious and irreligious people draw of him. And so tonight we're going to look at a classic parable, maybe the most familiar one, the parable of the prodigal uh, son. And Jesus is speaking to two groups, and the first two verses of chapter 15 tell us the two groups. It says, the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. That's one group, tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees and scribes, that's the second group, grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So there are two groups Jesus is talking to in this parable. And we're going to look actually at the first half this week and the second half next week. But the two groups are this. Really well-behaved religious people and people who don't believe the God of the Bible exists. So you have the Pharisees and the scribes, very committed to obedience, very committed to scripture, very committed to religion. And then the sinners and tax collectors, the people who are not sure, in fact are pretty sure, the God of the Bible doesn't exist. And his purpose is to frustrate both of those groups. So I'm going to read this story. We're going to look at the first half this week and the second half next week. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of the father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and I'll go to my father and I'm going to say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fat calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead 
and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was out in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older son was angry, refused to go in, and his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, and you killed the fattened calf for him, and he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider your word, we ask that you would be with us. We ask that you would open up its truths to us, that your Holy Spirit would attend our hearts. And I pray, dear God, that we would get frustrated, that we would be confused, that we would find out things about you we didn't want to believe, that we find hard to believe, but are maybe better than what we previously believed. Dear God, I pray that we would find that you're more beautiful than we thought. In your name, amen. Um, one of the more interesting things that's happened in social media this past year, I'm sure that y'all are all familiar with, and I love to, once you, if you get to know me, I love to examine what's happening that everybody's doing and then kind of what it tells us about our humanity. And the most interesting thing to me that happened this year is all the quizzes about which Harry Potter character you are or which Game of Thrones character you are, or I don't know why you wouldn't want to be any Game of Thrones character, but... Or Hunger Games character, and you take the Harry Potter quiz, and then you find out you're Ron, and even though we all like Ron, nobody actually wants to be Ron. So you go take the quiz again, so you can make sure you're Neville, because being Harry feels presumptuous, but Neville's really cool. That was kind of my psychological and emotional approach to that test. I don't know what yours is, but it's kind of like taking Hunger Games. You don't want to be PETA, you know? Like, you want to be Gale, even though you like PETA, and you're not saying anything bad about PETA, but... Anyways, my interior life for you right there at the beginning. Um, but those phenomenon, you know, you watch this happen, and it's crazy on Facebook or whatever. And I always think, I wonder what that is showing us about ourselves, how prominent this becomes so quickly. And I think those kinds of things are windows into our humanity. We can actually understand our soul and our heart and our longings when we kind of ask the question of like, not just, uh, you know, what character am I, but like, why is this so fascinating to such a vast portion of the population? And I think that those tests, or our desire to take those tests and our desire to publicly publish them, is this. We wanted to get feedback on who we are. We want to get validated. We want somebody or someone or something to know us and to give us a name, quite literally. And that gives us a status, and it gives us a place, and it gives us a self-understanding, and it gives us a home. And what we want is we want to say, tell me I'm someone, and tell me where I belong. And one of the things that I love about this school year is that the school year and the school calendar are these kind of few moments in life where you get to reinvent yourself every so often. Because what's going to happen this weekend and next weekend, this kind of first quarter, especially for freshmen, but even for everybody to some degree, is you kind of get to decide again who you want to be. What's your name going to be? What's your identity going to be? Who are your people going to be? 
How are you going to spend your time? You're going to come up to these kind of weekend nights for the first time, and you're going to wonder, what's everybody doing? Who is the everybody you're referring to? Do you like this everybody or that everybody? Right? Do I want to do it? And you're going to also ask your question, if I go with them and do this, what am I giving up by avoiding them who are doing that? And you have to sort through all of that. And it's kind of fun, but it's also kind of terrifying. But what's happening at the end of the day is you're looking for a place. You're looking for a home where people know your name and they know who you are and you have a status. And it's where you get to rest. There'll be the student organization fair this Friday. And because y'all are Stanford students, you're going to put your name on 400 different things. Like y'all are all going to try out for eight acapella groups and you're going to join the Quidditch team and all that kind of stuff. And what's going to happen is you'll sign up for a lot of things and you'll test the water in a lot of things. And you'll sign up for those things because you have common interests. That it interests you, whatever they're doing. The places that you will stay, you won't stay because of the common interest. You'll stay because you'll start to feel like you have a home. You actually stay because of your relationships with the people. Talk to the juniors and seniors who are deeply involved in student organizations. They're there now because that's where their friends are. Not because they love Quidditch, actually. You know? And so in some ways, we're looking for a home. And we're looking for a place where people know our name. And most of life, what it actually feels like is it feels like we're foster children because you find a home that works for a while. Maybe your home works for a while. Maybe high school is a home for a while. Maybe some of you think Stanford is going to be a home. Maybe you think the band or your startup or your relationship is going to be your home. And we dig in deep. And we make it our home. And we want it to be permanent. And we want it to be our safe place. But we find ourselves days or months or years later feeling like an orphan again. Like we have to find another home. Who are my people? Where do I belong? Do I have a home? And it's into that fundamental human need that Jesus tells this story. And there are two ways that we look for a home but end up lost. And they're depicted through the two sons. And we're going to look at the first son tonight. The first way that we go look for a home, but in that process of looking for a home, end up getting lost, is through the story of the first son. He looks for a home by going to a far-off country. This is what happens. There's a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that's coming to me. Divide his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country and squandered his property in reckless living. This is what's happening. Dad, I want my stuff now. I want my share of your... The word there is actually bios for property. It's actually, I want my share of your life. I want my share of your living. And as Jesus starts the story, that first verse, the listeners, their hackles raised. They're frustrated. Right? It comes right in and they're frustrated because what the son is saying, because no one treats their father, who we presumably is a very good father in this story, that way. Because what he's saying is, Dad, I want the stuff that I get by virtue of being your son, but I don't want to have to deal with you anymore. I want your resources, but I don't want to deal with you. And Jesus is speaking specifically to the sinners and tax collectors. People who are not even sure that God exists. The irreligious people. And he's saying, this, is, this was your posture before you started kind of asking the God question. God doesn't exist, but I like all this stuff. That's the younger son. I'm not into doing the father-son thing anymore, but I want the stuff I can enjoy. And this is the first frustrating aspect of the text. The patience and the generosity of the Father. 
that the patience and generosity he has toward a son that is not interested in even acknowledging his existence. He grants him his request. The first hearers, they're frustrated already because none of us would do that for any of our children. No fathers would do this. No mothers would do this. If your child came to you and said, I want half of your wealth and don't ever talk to me again. We would all agree, along with the entire American therapeutic community, that's terrible parenting. And yet God is saying, hey, maybe I'm different than the way you think parents should be. So here's the younger son, and his fundamental belief is this. His fundamental belief is, listen, my path home is not with you, Dad. My path home, my path to wholeness is self-exploration and self-discovery. Put it another way, i got to do what I want to do. i got to do what's right for me. Find what you want. Follow your dreams. Let your impulses lead you. Don't let people tell you what's right or wrong. And in that, finding your passion and following your heart, centering your life on you and what you need to make you happy. That's the younger son. Do what you want. Go to the far country. And the far country is wildly exciting. Scripture acknowledges that. But he eventually runs into the problem of every self-created and self-seeking and self-centered script that we follow. Over time, he finds himself lost. He finds himself feeding these pigs. And it's a low moment. And when you think that term lost, when I think lost and you apply it to, to the son situation, I think lonely and alienated, hurting, unknown, maybe unlistened to, not who we thought we were, having done things we didn't think we would do, empty, unconnected. And like the younger son, we get caught in this cycle of despairing of that feeling of lost. I feel lost again. I don't know who I am. I don't know where people are. How do I feel connected? And so we medicate that feeling with things that don't stick. And so we medicate with distraction, with amusement, with distraction, stay busy partying, stay busy working, stay busy chasing your dream so you don't have to deal with that growing hole inside of yourself, that sense that I don't have a home. Why does that happen to the younger son? Why does that happen to us? If we go out in the world and say, the path to human, to human wholeness is doing what's best for me following my every desire. It's because of this. If life is about following your own script and filling your own needs, actually modern psychiatry confirms, like it often does, what Jesus said 2,000 years ago, the one who seeks his own life loses it. This is what I want you to hear. We're not lost because we haven't found our passion. We are lost because our passion is ourselves. We are not lost because we haven't found a passion. We're lost because the thing I'm passionate about is me. My passion is me. And until you begin to see that you're made to be connected to something bigger than yourself, then our default is to just look out for me. I'm looking for a name and I'm looking for a home and I'm focusing on my needs and my wants and my desires and me and what I want to do. And in doing that, we actually fail to understand the one main thing that makes a home a home. A home is only a home if there's a family there. If it's bigger than you. If there are good parents there. 
you can only feel at home with a family. And you can only feel at home with a good father and a good mother. And it's no coincidence that actually in a culture that has the most resources for following your individualized, custom-fit to your personality dream, that we are the most depressed and relationally stunted culture ever. We are not happy, and we cannot form lasting relationships. And the younger son bottoms out. And then real self-reflection, maybe real self-reflection has taken place or is taking place for you. He comes to himself. Verse 17. He doesn't know who he is anymore. He doesn't know what he loves. He doesn't know who to be. He's lost. And he wonders, maybe there are answers with my father. Maybe there are answers except. Except my father knows who I am. Except I don't really fit in in a Christian group. Except everyone around me and the father included would look at me and say, well, someone like you can't really truly kind of belong with these kind of people because they know what I've done, and that really disqualifies me. And so kind of identifying yourself as a Christian, you can't do that anymore, that's not a possibility, but you at least begin to ponder, maybe I can at least explore this kind of God proposition. And the exploration looks a lot like the younger son's plan. And his plan is verse 18, he starts practicing his speech. I'll arise and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, here's my plan. Father, I've sinned against you, uh, sorry, against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. When we think God looks at our life and, he lo- and he, His arms are crossed and He's frowning, and we say, listen, I understand. I, I get it. I'm not going to expect you to treat me the same way you would treat to read their Bible every day, pray all the time, go to a million Bible studies, never fool around super Christians. Like, I understand that, God. I know you wouldn't treat me that same way. I want to I honor them by respecting the fact they worked hard, and I'm not one of those. But do you think I could score some happiness if I promised to be better? Right? What if I try hard to do a little bit better job with my life? And the younger son... Starts his walk back and he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran to him and embraced him. And the son said to him, Father, starts his speech. I've sinned against you. I get it. Sin against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm not going to ask for that. I get it. I'm, that would be presumptuous. Verse 22. The father cuts off his speech. That's the most interesting fact in this text. I'm not sure the father's even listening. He doesn't let the son finish the speech. And this is the second frustrating aspect of the text. The younger son doesn't even understand the father's love or come to the father in the appropriate way, and the father runs to him regardless. And he doesn't just care about... It's not just that he doesn't care about the younger son little speech an attempt to try to acknowledge things aren't well between them, he cuts him off and says, bring my best robe, bring my ring, bring my sandals. Those are the markers of full status. Those are the things you put on the son you're proudest of. Kill the fatted calf. That's the thing you can only do once a year because it's ridiculously expensive, and you do it in the proudest moment of your family. 
And this is how, if there were people watching this scene unfold, that Jesus wants us to envision what it would look like to see this scene unfold. And this is what would have happened. People would have watched the Son and the Father in the field. And they would have said, you're taking Him back. The Son that we all know what He's been doing with women what, who's wasted your fortune... And there's not going to be a probationary period. It's not going to be like, let's wait and see. There's not going to be any shaming. There's not going to be, well, prove yourself and prove that you're legitimate. There's not even going to be any finger wagging. You're just going to love Him this way. And this is how people would have imbued the running of the Father and the embrace of the Father with the Son. They would say, that man is embarrassing himself. They would have been embarrassed for the Father. They would say, that is shameful for a father to treat... That son, that way. He has no self-respect. And the father doesn't care. He actually takes the spotlight of shame and embarrassment off of his son, and he doesn't care. And it's obvious that God is the father in this story. And this has got to be frustrating to all of us Christian or not, skeptic or not, good person or bad person, because this is not how God's supposed to behave. Because the hardest thing to believe about God, if you actually read the Bible, instead of deal with kind of decontextualized caricatures of who God is, if you actually read the Bible, the hardest thing to believe is how much He loves you. How He doesn't care what you've done. How He doesn't care about your attempt to be more religious. I'm pretty sure He's not listening when you're like, but this time I'm going to do better. He's not listening in this passage. Your, your, Your promise to do better is not what engenders His love for you. His character is what engenders His love for you. His promise is what engenders His love for you. He's overjoyed to have you. So much so that in your reunion with Him, He actually bears the embarrassment so you don't have to. And our hearts and others want to say about us, but I don't really belong. And we can be... We can, that seems like a really rational point. But God is running to you in the person of Jesus. He is placing all the shame and the embarrassment and the cause for disqualification that is in all of our lives on Himself, on Jesus at the cross, so that people's attention and even your attention is no longer on all the reasons you don't belong. But now your attention and what you're captivated by is how good He is to you. God's heart is with the lost people without homes. His desire is to provide a home. His action is to take away all the things that make you think you can't be in His home. And His goal is a party. And I'll close with this. We're going to talk more about partying next week. It's an important theme in Scripture. Did you know in the Old Testament, Israel, for one entire year, every 50 years, they had to party all year? God's actually teaching us something. We're going to talk about that next week. I just get excited about it. 
That's insane, by the way. That's another way. You're like, what? Really? God of the Bible? Yes, God of the Bible. One year-long party every 50 years. Among the seven different parties that go on throughout the year, several of which are a week long. Let that soak in for a second. Um, I'm going to close with this. Stanford, what you've heard about it, you'll continue to hear about it. High-achieving, elite, brilliant people. I couldn't get in here, but I love saying, well, I work at Stanford because I get to pretend like I belong with y'all. But even so, with all that praise that's been heaped on you, there's so many of us that feel worthless. And in fact, you might feel worthless once you get here when you find out you're not that special anymore. They're like, oh, guess what? There's like 6,500 people that were also valedictorian. And all of a sudden, you're average for the first time in your life. You're at Stanford, and that makes you feel special for a while. But maybe, but I know this because I feel this way at times, and I know this because you feel this way at times in our conversations. You feel inadequate, and you feel worthless. Maybe it's because of the way what your parents said to you and the way they, they led you to this kind of achievement level. Maybe it's because of your boyfriend or girlfriend what they said or the lack thereof. Maybe it's because you're not part of a certain group or you don't have the friends you thought you had. Or maybe it's because of your body. Or maybe it's because of other people's success. Maybe it's because of your sin. And they're all telling you this story that you're not a real person and you don't have a home and no one values you. And Jesus is telling you that you're so precious to Him that not only does His heart lament our lostness. Not only does He run to us to restore us, not only does He bear our shame, after all of that, He throws a party. And you need to hear that. This is, a, this is actually the third parable in a series of three that are all told simultaneously. And there are three stories of lost things. And the first one is a man who loses a sheep and goes and finds it. And the second one is a man, who, a woman who loses a coin and goes and finds it. And Jesus is actually teaching the people, interestingly enough, about this word repentance. And at the end of each of the first two stories about a lost thing getting found, he says, this is what repentance is. And I celebrate repentance. And that's a word that maybe sounds like uber weird religious that makes you uncomfortable. And it sounds, you think repentance, oh, that's that time where you're supposed to beat yourself up about stuff. And Jesus is saying, I want you to understand repentance. It's like this. A woman loses a coin. She goes and finds it. She's so excited to find it. She has a party. That's repentance. A shepherd loses a sheep. He goes and looks for it. He finds it. He's so excited he has a party. That's repentance. Jesus calls repentance getting found. And we will never get found unless we stop trying to find ourselves through self-discovery and self-exploration and self-seeking. Repentance is when we die, when we come to the place where we finally say, this self-discovery thing is not working. It makes me think about myself all the time and I'm just moving into a darker and darker, lonely place. This do-what-I-feel-like stuff has not gotten me anywhere. It's left me feeling like an orphan, hopeless to craft a home for ourselves. And we finally die to that dream and let God find us. We'll let God welcome you. Let God enjoy you. Hear and believe God's word of love for you. Hear and believe God's word of forgiveness for you. Hear and believe God's word of joy over you. And let God bring you into the party. And I know there are people all over the God spectrum in here. Convinced and unconvinced. And I want to tell you, 
especially if you're here and you're like, I'm not sure where I stand on this. You are in a classroom on a Tuesday night at 9 o'clock listening to a 2,000-year-old document. I am convinced that is God looking for you. Why else would you be here? And so the question for you is not, have you misbehaved too much? The question is, will you believe God when He says, You're my son. You're my daughter. You are lost, but I have found you. I take your sin on the cross, and I take away your shame. I have found you, and you are home. Let's pray.